Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. This hour is going to be uh, a little bit uh, talking about if you've weathered the storms of life and maybe you've gone through some hurt and disappointment and you've become maybe suspicious of joy, afraid to enjoy the good things in life for fear that they might be snatched away. So I'm going to talk to Nicole Zazowski. She's written a book called, What If It's Wonderful?, that's going to be our topic in just a minute. And then Reverend Chris Palmer is going to join me in the second uh, part of the hour. And you know, he is our, our Greek expert. And don't you just kind of wish you grew up speaking Greek? Because then you wouldn't have to be learning it. But we all should learn some Greek, and Chris is going to help us do that. But to get things started, let's bring on Nicole uh, Zazowski. I actually spent a little bit of time practicing her name during the break, so I wouldn't uh, butcher it. Nicole, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is fun to join you. Yeah, so uh, tell me the the uh, background to your name. Is it Czechoslovakian? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it's uh, Polish. My my husband has some Polish in his background, so I married into that last name. I was Wallace before that, which was much easier. Nicole Wallace to Nicole Zazowski. Yes. Yeah. So fun. It's a lovely name. It's a lovely <laughs> Thank name. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And if you uh, had that name as a kid, you would have been sitting in the back of the class. This is true. I went yeah. from W to Z. I, I didn't think I'd go down the alphabet, <laughs> but, but I did. I managed. Yeah. yeah. So interesting topic. Your book is called, uh, I don't need to tell you the name of the book, but I'll tell the listeners. <laughs> what if it's wonderful? Release your fears, choose joy, and find the courage to celebrate. There are plenty of people, I think, that like maybe you at one point, were highly suspicious of joy, maybe even afraid to enjoy some of the good things in life. What if you enjoy them and then it gets snatched away? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, I uh, had gone through a season of pain and loss. And when you go through loss, whether it's a betrayal or the loss of a loved one, uh, or just a season that looks really differently than you wanted it to, there's the loss itself, the thing that happened, and then there's the cost. And the cost is the impact to your sense of identity and or your sense of safety. And it took me a really long time to realize that part of the cost of my own loss was that when I did start experiencing more joy and breakthrough and good news, I realized my joy was accompanied by a lot of fear. And most people don't realize that joy is actually the most vulnerable feeling we feel because it feels easier not to hold something than to hold something that might break. Um, and so uh, part of my journey was learning how to fully embrace the gift right in front of me because I was so grieved when I realized I was missing out on a lot, um, not only because of the loss itself, but because of my refusal to fully embrace the joy that, that God had for me. Um, Nicole, talk, uh, if you would, about finding the courage to celebrate and how this isn't something that we should be 
missing. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, we have so narrowed our definition of celebration to either be a reaction to good news or a reward for an accomplishment. We're, most of us think that we're willing to celebrate. We're just waiting for a reason to do so. But one of the most helpful things for me is when I was looking at celebration in Scripture, I, I looked at all those beautiful feasts and festivals outlined for us in the Old Testament, and I realized that the Israelites didn't celebrate because it was convenient or because they had an obvious reason to do so. They celebrated because it was time. They celebrated in rhythm. And it, it taught me that celebration is much more of a rhythm that is available to all of us, no matter what kind of season we're living, than it is a reaction or a reward. And it's, it's a rhythm that helps us cultivate more joy in the life that we're already living. Mm. Have we even defined what celebrate means right now? Maybe we should start there. Yeah, I, I think it's a practice. Uh, and there's several different ways that that can look, and we can talk about some practicalities in a minute. But it is a practice um, that, if you're a believer, helps you uh, remember God and His faithfulness, and, and it's a practice that helps you cultivate more joy in your everyday life. Mm, I like that. So what are the most common reasons people might be hesitant to celebrate? Yes, I'm a, I'm a marriage and family therapist, so as I was going through my own wrestling with joy and celebration, of course, this is in the midst of a pandemic where the whole world is going through an interesting season together, um, and I started to realize, even with people whose stories look really different than mine, this is a common theme. We are hesitant to celebrate, and five uh, reasons seem to come up over and over again. The first uh, we, we already touched on is, is fear. It feels easier not to embrace joy than to hold something that might break. Um, and we're worried about the other shoe dropping. And so we uh, practice disappointment and rehearse disaster um, and keeping ourselves from a lot of joy. The second is that we're waiting for a reason to celebrate and we haven't yet discovered it as a rhythm. Um, the third is a lot of us are unsure how to reconcile this invitation to celebrate with our value of humility. We view celebration as somehow self-aggrandizing. Um, the fourth is that, of course, we're all living different seasons at different times. And um, when we think about the call to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, we're afraid that our celebration is going to be insensitive or hurtful to other people. And the fifth, this was really true for me, is um, a lot of us grow, uh, draw really close to God in uh, the dark and in our pain, and we're afraid that uh, as we step into the light of our joy, that that relationship with God that was so close and near in the dark uh, will go away. We're, we're unsure how to engage with God deeply in the light of our joy. Mm. Um, and we absolutely can. We need him just as much in the light of our joy as we do in the dark. Um, but a lot of us haven't been taught what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Nicole Zazowski is my guest. Her book is What If It's Wonderful? Release Your Fears, Choose Joy, and Find the Courage to Celebrate. So the painful seasons really do shape our celebration, don't they? Yes. Yes. 
They absolutely do. Um, I think a lot of us see our celebration sitting on the other side of a dream realized or a goal achieved or some sort of change in our circumstances. But again, when we think about the Israelites and the fact that the celebration was more of a rhythm, mm-hmm. um, it it was a rhythm of remembering God's character and remembering his faithfulness to us in the past. And somehow, sometimes celebration does look like celebrating a, a change in circumstances, but often it looks like remembering a God who does not change. Mm-hmm. Nicole, can you maybe uh, give us a little sample of what what it would be for you to be experiencing this um, ritual of celebration? Uh, can you give us a sample? On sure. Like one of my, you? yes, one of my favorite practices uh, for many reasons, but um, this is a simple, doable, accessible practice that you can uh, practice every day. Uh, it's called savoring. And to savor, you just take one snapshot from your day. I like to practice it in the present moment, uh, but a lot of people like to practice it as a reflective exercise at the end of their day. Just take one snapshot that brought you joy, a small, small, small moment, and you just close your eyes and ask your five traditional senses what they're going to remember about that moment. So what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear? What do you taste? And what do you feel? And that helps uh, celebrate a moment that your brain would be tempted to discard or dismiss as unimportant because the brain only keeps what it thinks it's going to need, which are often big and painful things. And, And that will preserve that moment of joy in a way that you can carry it forward and recall it later. Mm, interesting. So I've got a bunch more questions for you. I think I'm going to take a little break right now. My guest is Nicole Zazowski. It's with a Z. Z-A-S-O-W-S-K-I. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she's um, uh, written a book called What If It's Wonderful? Release Your Fears, Choose Joy, and Find the Courage to Celebrate. I've got uh, all kinds of questions about joy and when I come back, I want to ask you about comforting others in their pain. It seems like we're better at doing that than we are at celebrating others in their joy. We'll talk about that when we return. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. My guest is uh, Nicole Zazowski, and she's written a book called What If It's Wonderful? Release Your Fears, Choose Joy, and Find the Courage to Celebrate. So, Nicole, I think sometimes we're better at comforting others in their pain than we are at celebrating others in their joy. So, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so this is something that, that comes up a lot in my conversations about celebration. Um, when we think about Paul's call in Romans to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, often we're better at the mourning part. And the 
Bible story that was so helpful to me on this uh, was it's found in Deuteronomy 3, and it's when the Israelites have been traveling through the wilderness, and they are so close to the promised land. Scripture says Moses goes up on this mountain, and he can actually see it in the distance. And he goes up on this mountain to talk to God and ask him one more time, um, can I please be the one to enter the promised land? Because we know that earlier in that journey, he had disobeyed God and was told he would not get to enter the promised land and, and continue to lead God's people uh, for that part of the journey. And um, God gives an emphatic no <laughs> and says, this is the end of that conversation. But what I'm really challenged by is what he says next. Uh, He says, I want you to commission Joshua. Essentially, I want you to pour courage into Joshua and prepare him for the journey that you would love to have for yourself. And that was just such a picture for me of what it looks like to celebrate other people, which is particularly hard when their celebration steps on the toes of our own dreams. It's something we would love to have for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think we often try to find a way to accept others' joy instead of joining them in that place, either by making a connection that could be really helpful in furthering their dream or helping them physically prepare or praying for them and committing to doing so on a regular basis, whatever it looks like, I think our call is to actively help someone prepare. Um, and I think it changes our own hearts. It certainly has mine when I've, when I've done this. I, I see not, not a scarcity mentality, but um, that God is moving in someone else's life, and I see that he's moving in mine too. I like that. In your book, you talk about the difference between celebration and escape. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, sometimes we're we're tempted to look at the behavior itself and say, okay, well, what's celebration and and what's escapism? And really a a more helpful diagnostic question is, what am I looking for in engaging in this behavior? Because escapism is actually a reaction to pain that uh, seeks to disconnect us from our emotional experience, our relationship with someone else or with God. Uh, Whereas celebration is an action based on truth that actually is connecting. It helps us connect more deeply with our emotional experience, uh, other people, and with God. Um, And so one is an action and one is a a reaction to pain that's uh, often understandable but not healthy or helpful. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So let's say we're in a situation, our circumstances aren't great, and things haven't changed in a while. Oh, how do we practice a celebration when we're in that place? Yes, I think um, the practices, I outline a bunch of them in the, the last section of my book. I think savoring is a great practice. The one we talked about earlier where we ask our five traditional senses what they're going to remember about one moment of delight. And that thing can be really small. Um, it changes our vision. It helps us notice and name what is good and, and really cements that experience. I think the practice of Thanksgiving is really powerful, and this is mm-hmm. different than gratitude. Uh, gratitude does increase our joy. The, the research is clear about that because it does help, help us notice and name what is good. 
But Thanksgiving is something that we don't often talk about, which is actually expressing the gratitude that you feel either to God in your prayers or to other people. And the interesting thing is that Thanksgiving doubles the joy that we would glean had we simply felt that gratitude. Um, so actually saying it and, and expressing it to God or another person will double the joy that you would glean had you simply felt grateful in your heart. Mm. Yeah, that's critical. Keep that gratitude in your heart. In your book, I was going through it and I came across uh, chapter three called The Shadow of Shame. And mm. I, I loved uh, the Tim Keller quote um, that you started that chapter off with. And I better let the listeners know what the quote says. When people say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, they mean that they have failed an idol whose approval is more important to them than God's. Yes. So how does shame get in the how does shame interfere with us celebrating? I think the primary way is when we're shaming ourselves, we are committing to earn a celebration that is freely given uh, by Jesus on the cross. Uh, we are committing to earn um, that that gift and and that was already freely given and, um, you know, committing to being our own savior in a way, uh, which blocks us from celebrating the freedom that's already ours in Christ. Um, and, and shame is tenacious about finding fault within. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's that nasty message, the, the merciless critic, um, in your head that tells you that, uh, you are not valuable and, and that it's your burden uh, to prove your value. And that is not the message of the gospel. Um, and so I love that Tim Keller quote because it just really uh, poignantly uh, expresses that truth. Mm -hmm. Nicole uh, Zazowski is my guest and her, her book is What If It's Wonderful? Release the Fears, Choose Joy and Find the Courage to Celebrate. Talk about the comparison game. That can be a celebration robber. Yes, for sure. We know that that famous quote, comparison is the, the thief of joy. Mm -hmm. um, and, and certainly the same is true for our celebration. I'm going to butcher this quote, but um, C.S. Lewis has a great thought on this that essentially says, we are often not pleased by a good thing. We are we are only pleased by being better or having yes. more um, of something than someone else. And um, I think we do the same thing with celebration. We think I can only celebrate if I am the best or if I have more of this than somebody else or if I'm better at this. And uh, that will rob us of a lot of joy and, and a lot of um, opportunities to practice celebration in our everyday life. Mm -hmm. To follow up on that C.S. Lewis quote, he, he was saying to the to the the demons, convince them that they need to lose five pounds. Don't and don't let them go have an enjoyable evening walk. Make right. them go take the walk because they need to lose five pounds. Or have them read a book, not because the knowledge and the the pleasure of the reading will be good, but it will help them be smarter than than that other jerk at the office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah exactly the context that we're talking about yeah and there's no there's no celebrating there at all mm -mm, yeah no okay love lavishly a christian sh should be an alleluia from head to foot augustine mm. said that talk about loving lavishly yes i think um 
you know, one of the one of the Bible stories that really stood out to me is I thought of the woman who broke this expensive bottle of perfume and washed Jesus's feet with it and her tears and, and dried him with her hair. And just what a lavish act of love that this was. And of course, the Pharisees um, judged that action as, as demonstrative and um, a waste. And But the disciples were standing there confused as to why Jesus was not admonishing her and why he was receiving such a lavish gift. They said, isn't that money better spent on the poor? And it just stood out to me that anything, even if it's a good thing, like our generosity and our charity, if it eclipses our awe and wonder of Christ, like that woman had. She recognized she'd been a recipient of grace. If if anything eclipses our love of Christ, it is standing in the wrong position of our heart. It is celebrated too high. Um, you know, Jonathan Edwards talks about this idea of disordered love and how we don't want our loves to be standing in the wrong position of our heart. And I think the same is true for our celebration. And so, uh, what what the disciples and the Pharisees called a waste, Jesus called worthy. Oh, I like that. I like that. And then if we talk about people who are sad, and we know plenty of them because there's lots of people that are in a point of suffering and sadness, how do we show up to them and encourage joy and celebration? Because we don't want to be insensitive, but we also want to try to encourage. How do we do that? Yes. What if it's wonderful is not what I would call a toxically positive book, (laughs) (laughs) meaning it does not expect joy to cancel pain. Rather, uh, what joy does is it it is able to trust God's promises in the midst of pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if you are walking alongside someone who is in the season of suffering, you know, it, it is Uh, What if it's wonderful isn't intended to pull them out of that place, but rather to sit, sit with them in it. Um, You know, we, we often move people along faster when we're willing to sit with them where they are. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think sitting them with, with them where they are in their place of pain um, is the best, best way, uh, best place to start in in that healing journey. Mm Mm-hmm. Nicole, thank you for coming on the show today. It's been nice to meet you, and congratulations on your book and all the work uh, you've done on this and what God has taught you through this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a lovely conversation. It's been a delight. Thank you. Nicole Zazowski has been my guest. Her book is What If It's Wonderful? Release Your Fears, Choose Joy, and Find the Courage to Celebrate. Take a break. The Reverend Chris Palmer is going to talk Greek with us. Greek. Yeah, we're going to learn Greek. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. 
let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just join me, just climbing in your car. Nice to have you with us. You've missed a great show so far today. If you want to go back to MyFaithRadio.com, you can check out the podcast. They're going to be available after 6 o'clock Central Time tonight. But Chris Palmer is the founder and pastor of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan. He's also the founder of Chris Palmer Ministries and host of the popular podcast Greek for the Week. Regular on the show. Always like having Chris on. Just one of the nicer guys out there. Chris, welcome. I'm glad someone's saying that about me, Bill. Yeah, not the truth. <laughs> so I'm going to make a bargain uh, with you today. I want you to yeah. help us uh, understand one Greek word, and then I want to talk okay. about your new book. Okay, a bargain. A deal's a deal. My dad's a businessman, so he <laughs> taught me to always go after a good bargain. Yeah. So help us with uh, uh, the understanding of one Greek word. Okay, so, geez, there's a lot to pick out there. Okay. Um, do you have anything in mind? I know Rosie has a, a few out there, but let's see. Um Gosh, off the top of my head. Okay, so how about we actually there's there's one right in the text that I wanna kinda begin with today. Okay. So I think we can we can look at that here. So in Revelation chapter one, I love going to the book of Revelation because I think there are new ways, I don't say new ways, but we're we're renewing ways to read this text. And this text gets a really bad rap sometimes because people always sound scared to read it. But when we go to the as we kind of go to the first chapter. We see a very familiar uh, greeting and blessing that is given from John to the hearers. And that is in the Greek. I'm looking at my Greek Bible here. It says, Karis umin kai arane apon un. So this means grace to you and peace from the one who was and is and it is to come. Now, this, we see this, Bill, and we just go right over it because it's so familiar. We don't stop to think about mm-hmm. it. But something fantastic is going on here, and if, if there's any preachers that are out here looking for some some ammunition to really get your people encouraged on Sunday, this is a where you want to listen. Because what's happening is – I'm going to get to this meeting – but what's happening is there's a, a very topsy-turvy world that the reader is about to enter into the text. They're going to see things that are very unique and, and somewhat frightening. They're going to see judgment. But before any of that, there's a blessing pronounced, and that is grace to you and, and not only grace, but arane. Now, the Greek word here, arane, is the word peace. So often it rightly gets translated wholeness, both socially, personally, and that's a good intended meaning of it. And that would be more the Old Testament understanding of it. But that word in the Old Testament, okay, which was shalom. Okay, which the Greek word is peace, is Aaron in the Greek. As that word continues forward in the Old Testament, shalom, it picks up a prophetic meaning to it. And then in Second Temple literature, it starts to pick up an apocalyptic meaning to it. Whereas the only way that we can have true, total wholeness and total peace, both socially, personally, and communally, is as if the Messiah comes. And he begins and inaugurates his eschatological kingdom. And so the word Arane or Shalom picks up a anticipatory meaning. So now when it's used here in the apocalypse, it doesn't just mean I want you to have total wholeness. What it means is that there's also within this an anticipation that the Messiah is going to come a second time. 
and that he's going to continue or as he's continuing what he started, he's going to bring it to a culmination. And so what the promise is here to the hearers in the book of Revelation to that community is that before you see any judgments, God is at work right now and he is undoing the power of evil. He's undoing the effects of sin. He is in the midst of us working on our brokenness and our fallenness. And he's bringing about his messianic kingdom. And the community in uh, Asia Minor hearing this would really find an opportunity to hope. Because where there's grace, where God's grace and his power is at work, there is peace where he is bringing about his kingdom. So when we can personalize this in our own lives, Bill, when we see the work of the grace of God at work in our lives, whether he's mending a relationship, he is bringing about a restoration of something relationally that we've messed up, or he brings healing to a human body, or he mends a broken heart, or he starts restoring communities through the works of those who are showing the goodness of God. That grace is attached to the ultimate eschatological goodness of God, where it shows and it echoes the fact that he is soon and he's coming. And it's just a reflection of what is ultimately to come. And so I think that's the fullest meaning of the word here, Aaron. It takes on that, that future coming of God where he deals with the uh, undoing of evil and the problems that we face. So I hope does that meet that meets your bargain requirements. That is absolutely <laughs> meeting my bargain requirements. And it's that's <laughs> it seemed like a very simple expression, grace and peace to you, but I didn't know you, that it, that verse, those two verses are going to be backing up the truck and unloading that, what you just shared. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah, you know, I always, words pick up meaning over time. And if you look at words from the Old Testament, these Hebrew words, or it, it, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Septuagint, which is in the Greek 4th century, those words just continue to take on meaning. It's like a snowball that rolls down a hill. And so you can, one of the great things you can do in Bible study is, is, is see how a word is used in a text from the Old Testament and then see how it begins to pick up meaning as it moves from the old into the Ooh, new. I like that. And it's just, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Huh? All right. Bargain's a bargain. Now let's talk about your new book. I'm right. going to rely on you to supply uh, both the questions and the answers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the book is called Winks from Scripture, Understanding God's Subtle Work Among Us. So we'll yeah. talk about it again, uh, Chris, and we'll um, once I get a copy of it that I can read myself, I'll be able to uh, ask better questions. But I know in the book, um, in Winks from Scripture, you will uh, learn how to appreciate uncertainty and integrate it into a very vibrant life of faith. Yeah, absolutely. So the book was inspired because, first, I, I say in the very beginning of the book that I'm not attempting to solve the problem of evil and suffering. It's the biggest question that we have. We talk about it a lot on this show. It's just kind of where I'm locationally, in my, that's kind of my area of theology. I don't think that this, the Bible really gets at it. What I tell people in the book is that while the Bible doesn't actually address that problem and address that question, uh, address the answer to that question, it gives you hints along the way, enough hints that we can hope. And we find those hints buried in the story. Now, as Western readers in the 21st century, well, we're used to getting all of our information told to us in, in the form of propositions. You know, We're told how the weather is going to be. We're told what the news is. We're told what gas prices are. We're told how 18 ways that we have a better life, 25 ways we can have a better relationship. <laughs> we're, not, you know, we're not very storied people. In the first century, 
in order to get the information, you get you get stories, and stories are, were such where they were clever ways of, 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 of revealing something to you. And in those stories of Jesus, seeing Jesus with the woman at the well, seeing Jesus in the home of Mary and Martha, seeing Jesus on his way to the cross, in these stories, we find what I call winks, the way that the teller of the story tells the story that give us hope that Jesus is in con- in control, when I, I don't really like that word in control, but what I mean by that is it is vague, but he's in the midst of us. He's joined us in our suffering, and he's at work in our suffering to bring about, like I'm just saying, the peace or his final restoration of things and, and bring about a just world uh, for us to live in. And so I offer 30 studies in this book that kind of, uh, not just kind of, but that, that get at this and take us through some of the events of Jesus' life and even into the book of Acts. Uh, to to share with us that he's at he's at work uh, in the midst of us, and so that's kind of what the book does. Mm-hmm. So, Chris says that um, biblical stories are loaded with mystery. The mystery keeps us asking questions about the story's details. In doing so, little ironies and nuances emerge that we hadn't seen before. This is God winking at us, letting us know uh, he's there, guiding our lives. Absolutely. I think that's uh, one of the one of the biggest things that we need to realize. And so, I know what you want to know. You want to you you want to wink there, Bill. Is that it? I kind of do. I mean, if you've written thirty of them, I, I want at least one or two. I want a <laughs> I want a major tease. Okay, a major tease. Okay, so as we come to the text, um, one of the things that we we notice in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and John's Gospel is that these are meticulously crafted stories. And so. There's enough in there where readers would come to the text, and they it, most of these were were orally translated. You'd take the letter, or you'd take the epistle, and you'd read it to a community, they'd hear it. But then there'd be people that would study it, and they'd read it a second time, and so they'd have a secondary reading of it. Um, and so, in, in those secondary readings, I think there's a, there's enough anomalies in there where we begin to start to realize that unusual things are taking place. And, and perhaps one of the one of the most interesting things that we sometimes don't realize is in the book of Luke, when we get there, we notice that Jesus is at the table a whole lot, right? And so a lot of the important conversations that take place, a lot of the important posits of theology that take place in the book of Luke are actually at the table. And there are four or five banquet scenes, and that's one in every six chapters almost, where Jesus is eating and he's feasting. And, it, and, and in these scenes, the most surprising element of it, and, if you, and we don't really realize this if we just read one chapter a day, we close our Bible and move on. But when you look at it, you start to kind of get contoured. You start to see the peculiarities. And in every single table scene that we find in Luke, the most interesting thing about it is that all the wrong people, all the wrong people are at the table. It's not the right people. Hmm. For instance, uh, we see in Luke chapter 5, uh, there are tax collectors at the table. We see, I, I said four or five things, it's probably more than that. Um, in, Luke, in, in Luke chapter 7, there's a sinful woman who's not even invited, and she's at the table. In Bethsaida, it's not necessarily a table, but he's on the mountainside. The multitudes are there, and they're complaining, and they're whining, and they're, they're sheep without a shepherd. Then you see in Mary and Martha's home, you have Mary and Martha who are there, and they're women. They're not supposed to be technically at the table at that time because women at that time were the lessers of society, 
and the table was a place of teaching where you come to and where you would teach people and women weren't necessarily being set up that way to be teachers of the law or teachers of the mosaic covenant and then you, you go to the pharisees home okay you see scribes and pharisees that were disliked then you see um in Luke 14, a man who's suffering from swelling. I mean, this is an unclean man. He's not supposed to be in the scene. Um, and in 1910, you see Zacchaeus, who's a lost sinner. And so you begin, it goes on and on and on. So you see that I, I, would, I would say if you're writing a movie about Luke, you could say a tale of the wrong dinner guests, a tale of all the people that aren't supposed to be there. And this is really important because because as you, as you look at table language and table imagery from scripture, you, you learn that the table uh, is a place where God invites his people to come dine and come sup with him. So you have the God, the creator, he's supping, he's having an intimate moment with his people. So this represents an eschatological banqueting, an eschatological time where God is calling the people from all over the earth to come and dine with him. And I think what this is, what what this is, is telling us here, in our suffering, we have the suffering of the marginalized, the suffering of the people who are the overlooked, the suffering of the least, the last, and the lost, and that suffering comes because of broken systems. It comes because of sinful, uh, uh, you know, the sometimes the, the top class they they, they exert power, they uh, exploit power, they manipulate. But Jesus didn't just come; he came for those people. But he didn't just come for them. He came for the overlooked and he invited them and he said, come and sup and dine with me. And so I think this speaks to people that are that, that see themselves at the margins of society, sees themselves as the overlooked, pauper and the poor. That Luke's gospel is about Jesus came to those who suffer. Now, we don't necessarily know why all that happens all the time. It's very complicated. It's very, it's very complex, that type of suffering. But it does at least tell us it winks in our direction and tells those who Face that kind of suffering that God sees you, he knows you. You know, I was listening to the story of uh, uh, one of my friends, his name is Joshua Broom. He was um, an individual who was in the pornography industry. And he has quite a testimony, but, it, but when he talks about it, he, he talks about how he encountered God. And he'd be an example of one of these individuals who was at the margins. Wouldn't You wouldn't want to see him at the table because of the industry that he was involved in. But Jesus came for him. Jesus called him. And he, he received Christ and was filled with the Spirit, and God brought him to his table. And that's who Jesus is looking for, those types of sinners. And it reminds us that, um, that, that God is not a respecter of persons. He looks to and fro to those he'd invite. And Luke's, Luke's gospel winks at us and tells us that you may never know who's going to be at that table. You know, when we get to heaven, I, I, today I was, I was driving down um, Washington Avenue here in Palm Desert where I live, and uh, I saw two homeless people at a bus stop. And I was passing them by, I thought to myself, you know, it may just be God's irony that in heaven, they're sitting next to me at his banqueting table, because mm -hmm. that's just how God would be. So Luke reminds us of that, and that's a wink in our direction that God is calling those to his eschatological kingdom. Yeah, Chris, in God's economy, you just never know. Those homeless people might be sitting on either side of you in heaven at the banquet table. And you're going to go, may be sitting I know you guys, right? <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, even even which is more humbling, they may actually have a higher place at that table if there's <laughs> ranking <thing. laughs> Right, right. But Lord, I was the one who gave them the money. Yes, but 
what they stewarded, they they did a much better job of stewarding than, than what you did with what they had. So I think that keeps us humble that we just never know God's irony. He God has a sense of humor, and I think it's going to dawn on us all one day. Yeah, I agree. Chris Palmer is my guest. His book is called Winks from Scripture, Understanding God's Subtle Work Among Us. Chris Palmer, be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. So where's God when times are hard? I bet he might be winking at you to let you know that he's there. Reverend Chris Palmer is my guest. He's written a book called Winks from Scripture. Can't wait to get my hands on a copy. Chris, in the book, I think you talk a little bit about how the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament through Jesus. Absolutely. Um, this is something that I teach my students all the time, is to, we bring, we impose a lot on the text, and that's okay. I mean, that's just, it's normal for us to do that. We come to Scripture, we have a lot of presuppositions and assumptions about how how te- the text should work, what we've heard in Sunday school, and that's not all bad, but I, I, I I do try exercise with my students to try and make as as objective as possible uh, when looking at it and try to understand the scripture the way the first century reader would understand it as a hero without making any impositions to it. And and one of the ways of doing that is just being content with the way the text is in its final form. In other words, I know this is, I hope this isn't getting too heady here, but not trying to create a historical reconstruction of the text, but just trying to look for the text, how it is in and of itself. And so one of the, when, when you do that, I think you begin to see how the text uses the Old Testament. It's dependent on the Old Testament. Umberto Eco, he's an Italian um, author. And he says that when we, we listen to people, when we, we read read writers' works, we, we watch films and movies, what we're seeing is just re, just products of having heard someone else. So when you listen to me, you've list, you're listening to everyone who's informed me. When you listen to other people, you're listening to who's informed them. And so I think that you know when we come to the, the New Testament, um, we're, we're seeing how the Old Testament has informed these writers. And um, one thing that's interesting is when we come to Mark chapter 8, we find a text that we really have to wrestle with. And I don't, I'm not sure if I've talked about this on the show or not, but forgive me if I have, but I, or maybe we can ha- you know, take another crack at it. Jesus is praying for somebody in Mark 8, 22, and it almost seems like for a second that Jesus gets it wrong. Now, we know he doesn't, but it almost seems that way. And what he sees, uh, what he does is he prays for a man twice. And the first time he prays for this blind man, the man, Jesus says, well, can you, you know, can you see? And the man says, no, it just, it looks like trees are, looks like trees are walking. You know, it looks like trees are walking. And so, which is really interesting because it's like, well, did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Did Jesus not, you know, was his healing power just at 70 or 50% that day? And we kind of walk away scratching our heads. And I think that's exactly what Mark wants you to do. He, he kind of puts this, the way he tells it kind of doesn't give you the reason for it. But when you go back to different portions of the text, remember Mark's dealing with what, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get the reader's to understand who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, that he's the king of kings, that he's he's the sent one who's come from heaven and he's the creator. 
That's that's what he wants them to arrive at. And and the way he frames it is through the life of the disciples. And you see the disciples in Mark struggling with this. Okay, who is he? At times they think they know who he is, and at times you realize they he doesn't know who they don't know who he is. And we're kind of we identify with the disciples. And in in Mark eight fourteen to twenty one, there's a story in there, and it, the disciples are kind of scratching their head. We won't go into the story, but the takeaway from it is that the disciples are scratching their head because, you know, Jesus tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and, and they talk about, and they, they think, what do you mean? And Jesus says to them, don't you yet not yet perceive or understand, and are your hearts hard? That's in verse 17. So they don't know. But then in, in 8, 27 and 30, which is just six verses, six or seven verses later, they have this moment of clarity where they come to realize, and Peter, on behalf of the disciples, correctly answers who Jesus is. He's the son of God. So in Mark 8, 18 to 14 to 21, they don't know. Mark 8, 27 to 30, they seem to kind of know. They get a hint at it. And in between those two texts, you have this example of Jesus praying for a blind man twice who slowly comes to see who Jesus is. What I think is going on here, Bill, is I think that Mark had set this story of Jesus praying for the blind man in between these two accounts of one, the disciples not knowing, two, the disciples kind of knowing, to illustrate how they're coming to know who Jesus is, that it's a gradual progression, just like the man who was blind who mm. eventually saw. Okay, that's exactly illustrative of how the disciples are slowly coming to understand. They go from blindness in eight fourteen to 21 to having a moment of clarity, like the man who sees trees walking, what eventually predicts that after the cross and after the Spirit is placed upon them, that they're going to have this great moment of clarity where they come to know he is indeed Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the promised one who was predicted by Isaiah and Jeremiah and the, and the prophets to come. And so Jesus um, talks to them about this. And I think I, I think that's a... a what I do in the book is I, I illustrate this about how, as, as human beings, we're kind of like the disciples, and we're kind of like this man. And at times we sense that we're blind. At times we sense that these, there's, in the midst of suffering, we have these moments of kind of half clarity where we kind of maybe know, even in our most clear moments, it still feels blurry to us. Kind of like how the Apostle Paul says that we see through a glass darkly. What I think this is saying is that this is all seen in part and knowing in part, but there is going to come a time where the mystery of suffering, the mystery of evil, the omnipotence of God, the omniscience and omnipresence of God, that, that conundrum will be clearly known to us. We will stand before God face to face. We'll know why. We'll, we'll be able to understand better things of, like the Holocaust, things like the Armenian genocide, the Sudanian genocide, the killing of innocent children, these things that make no sense to us, that seem very blurry to us. We just have to hope in light of that. But I do believe that there's going to come a day where our seeing and our knowing is clear. And until then, we hope and believe that we now know in part and see in part. And we can trust in that moment that Jesus is, is on his way to the cross. He's done his work at the cross and we will know and will triumph. So, Chris, it sounds like when you get done reading Winks from Scripture, you are going to have a renewed hope in God's beautiful plan of not only creation, but redemption. Absolutely. That's that's the point of it. And Again, I try not to solve and go do too deep into answering why suffering happens. I don't think we're mm-hmm. ever gonna. I say that I say that the, that these kind of these kind of questions resist our best our best intellectual solutions. I mean, we can't get there that way. 
Uh, but again, we, we approach that question uh, since the actually the 1700s, 8th, 18th century, um, post-enlightenment with a rational mind. But the Bible doesn't come at it rationally. I think that apologetics, you know, is good in a sense that it helps us to intellectually defend our faith. But when it comes to this, even our best uh, theodicists or our best apologists don't really have the answer to this question. And I heard, um, I believe Michael Murray, he said this, he, he asked the question, are we in a really good, are we in a good position as fallen creation to really give a moral evaluation of God and why suffering happens? And I, I, what he's really saying is, do we really, as fallen creatures, can we really do justice to answering this question? And I think the answer is probably not. Mm-hmm. And so what the scripture really does is it gives us a lot of hope and it gives us a lot of encouragement. It kind of it kind of leaves us there to wrestle with it. And I think that when you read Wings from Scripture, you won't get the answer to why it happens, but you'll be encouraged to keep on keeping on and not resign your hope. Sweet. Chris, thank you so much for doing the show. Always great to have you on. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, Chris Palmer's been my guest. Wings from Scripture is his new book. That wraps up our show. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That wraps up our show for the day and for the week. Thank you for supporting Faith Radio. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.